Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. This is the place at Freightways where we talk about oil, which has to be drilled, and which the trucking industry needs very, very badly. But we also talk about other stuff, too. Our guest today is Peter Stefanovich of Left Lane Associates. He's deeply involved in the market for acquisitions in asset and non-asset-based trucking companies and brokerage companies. He's going to be here to talk about the market for mergers and acquisitions. I thought maybe we could talk about something else, but we have to talk once again about diesel prices. A week ago, on the day that the most recent drilling deep was published, the price of ultra-low sulfur sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange had been moving lower. It settled that Friday, April 8th, at about $3.31 per gallon. A day earlier, it was down to a little less than $3.27 per gallon. It looked like some relief might be in sight. Today, as I write this, the price settled at about three eighty-five and a half, a half cent, that is. So that's up more than fifty cents since a week ago. If I suggested last week that maybe the market had softened, well, forget it. That obviously didn't happen. What's going on? Besides the macroeconomic backdrop of the continued Russia-Ukraine war, the focus recently has been on inventories. In the latest weekly inventory report from the Energy Information Administration of the U.S. Total distillate inventories, of which diesel is the biggest part, were at their lowest level for this time of year since 2008. Jet fuel inventories on the U.S. East Coast are also at the lowest level in many years. That is significant for diesel because jet fuel is a distillate like diesel, and it means that both markets are tight and need more supplies. The problem is it's tough to make more of both things at the same time, so rebuilding those inventories is a real challenge. There are all sorts of signs that the market in general shouldn't continue to be moving higher. The forward curve, which reflects prices out in the future, is moving in a direction that suggests a lot of traders are a little less concerned about the supply-demand balance going forward. The International Energy Agency, earlier this week, said that its earlier prediction of a loss of 3 million barrels per day of Russian crude in April was probably going to be about half of that at the end. It still is projecting 3 million barrel per day losses going forward as customers shy away from buying Russian crude, but it is going to be less than that in April, so maybe that might happen in the future too. And yet the market keeps rising. This appears to be one of those times where diesel is leading the market up, not the other way around. You take the main factors hitting diesel and they're all bullish. Russia is a major diesel supplier. Diesel and jet inventories are tight going into, were tight going into the war, and now they're even tighter. The end result is that the spread between global crude benchmark Brent and ultra-low sulfur diesel is out to almost $1.20 per gallon, or about $50 per barrel. Those are huge numbers. A year ago, the average spread between Brent and diesel was about $16 per barrel on average. So you can see the strength in the diesel market. It's getting close to unprecedented. The key point here is that while the macroeconomics of oil might be getting some relief, diesel is pushing back. That relief could be coming from oil to be released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is going to be about a million barrels per day just out of the U.S., and there there are other strategic supplies coming out of other countries. But for now, if you're driving a truck, remember that it is your fuel that might be the main factor in the most recent increase in the price of oil. We are going to move on now here on Drilling Deep. This next interview comes out of a session I attended last week at the Transportation Intermediaries Association. That's the trade group for brokers. It was their annual meeting in San Diego. The weather out there was mostly nice, a little chilly on Saturday, 
when those Santa Ana winds stopped blowing, it was in the 90s on, on Friday, and I really love that. But inside the meeting, it was very busy with about 1,500 attendees, which I heard may have been a record. And one of the better sessions that I went to was one on merger activity in the freight sector, with, of course, a particular emphasis on the market for 3PLs. One of the speakers in that session was Peter Stefanovic. He is the president of Left Lane Associates. Left Lane is Toronto-based. They work with buyers and sellers of both asset-based and non-asset-based companies. And he is here to join us today on Drilling Deep. So, Peter, welcome. Great. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me here. And I'd love to speak about M&A like I did when I saw you at the TIA session. Right. So the, the, the message that came across in that session was that it is a very active market right now. And I, I guess I walked away thinking one of the more interesting aspects of that was the fact that this was a, a business that was supposed to get hammered by digital brokerages. And yet the market for buying them seems very hot. How hot is that market? Yeah, it's it. You know what? It's it. Everyone uses the the benchmark of last year as being the the peak of M and A activity in the logistics or transportation space, but really this year it, it is peaking just the same, if not more. And there's been a huge, huge uh, convergence from outside parties that weren't interested in this space coming into it and finding an interest from you know a variety of factors with tech based brokers or you know niche brokers in it. So there's private equity, venture cap, high net worth individuals, family offices, sovereign wealth funds. These are all people we've chatted with, as well as the typical uh, strategics that you all know from the big 3PLs to asset-based carriers looking at being more of a hybrid. So there's there's a lot of interest from all different parties circling really uh, this sector right now. And yet the point was made that the multiples on the deals that are getting done have not been rising, that it's basically about, I guess, what, five to seven times is it revenue or no, no, five, seven times EBITDA um, for companies with uh, less than $100 million in, in EBITDA. You, you review the numbers. You're better than me. But, but I guess the, the main point of the, the question here is if there's all this hot interest, why are the multiples not rising? So the, the multiples, uh, they, they, they rise in certain sectors. So if it's if a company is above 10, uh, 10 million in EBITDA, then they're going to get uh, anything in the double-digit mark. So that's 10 plus times EBITDA from a multiple perspective. If they're sitting around that that kind of just below five, uh, 5 million in EBITDA, they're sitting around that five to seven times multiple. And anything from five to 10 times EBITDA, they're going to get that call it six to 10 times EBITDA, uh, six to 10 times multiple on their EBITDA. So it, it varies based on sort of the tranches where companies are sitting, but also a variety of factors too. Again, that's the customer concentration, carrier concentration, um, having the correct legal paperwork in place and organization structure, key management in place. There's all these factors that go into it that discerns what area of the multiple you're going to be on, on the lower end of the multiples I just described or on the higher end. So all those play into, you know, the bigger picture of where you're going to sit from, you know, a multiple perspective. But if, but are those multiples rising? Because I would think if you suddenly get this surge of demand and surge of interest from fields that hadn't been interested previously, you know, I think a classic economics model would tell you that the valuation should be rising, but they're apparently not. How is that possible? So in, in they rose to an all-time peak really in, in 2021, let's call it Q3, Q4, so the end of last year, if you will. And they've been about steady. They've, they've kind of stayed around that same mark. Um, in the last, you know, Q1 of this past year. And, and the reason for that, instead of it rising is because with, you know, any buyers looking at uh, a 
risk profile, and the risk profile is other market conditions. So it may not be the actual company itself, but you've got the war in Ukraine with Russia, you've got uh, you know economic uncertainty with with uh, you know shutdowns happening in China right now. You've got uh, a slowdown from a volume perspective in you know the the, the freight volumes, and then on top of it, um, you know you've got rising interest rates too. So those factors, you know, generally speaking, would have actually brought multiples down. So where they've actually been is stayed where they were last year. Um, and they've been around that same mark. So they're just not going up. But with all these other outside economic forces, it's actually pretty, you know, pretty unique that they've stayed where they have been with all these other things happening on the outside world that cause an impact generally would cause, you know, multiples to decrease. But they've been st- pretty steady actually for the last uh, several months actually into 2022. Yeah. So stability in this case is almost tantamount to an increase, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So Noel Perry gave the, was in a, on a panel on the final day. He's the well, you know, well-known freight economist. So right now he's the freight economist for the TIA. And he showed some data, which I know comes out of their quarterly report. The TIA sends freight waves to quarterly report every month. I generally, every quarter, excuse me, and I write on it. And it showed that for all the craziness last year, broker margins were not really that different. They kind of stayed pretty steady. Uh, and in fact, you know, they, they hit their... They hit their high point in the second quarter of 2020 when spot market rates collapsed uh, as the start of the pandemic. Uh, then they bottomed out when uh, when things started rising. Then they've been kind of steady since then. What kind of stability in margins does that have on the valuation of a company? Or is it simply a function of EBITDA? And of course, EBITDA is driven to a, to a degree by the margins. Yeah, so you're right about the last point. So EBITDA is, is driven to a degree by the margins themselves. Um, once, you know, when you're looking at you know the earnings um, before interest tax depreciation and amortization, so that's EBITDA, um, margin do play a big factor in there. And certain brokers are are, are laser focused on margin to get a high high margin, could be 30 percent margin, gross margin. But other others are looked look at volume, so more of a volume uh, player in the market. So saying, great, we're doing ten to fifteen percent margin or fifteen to twenty percent margin, but we're doing $300 million in revenue versus somebody that's laser focused on margin and only doing about $50 million in revenue. Right. So let, me just, let me just jump in here and note that the TIA data, of course, also comes out with a, a, a number on the average size of the invoice. And that average size of the invoice has been rising for like seven consecutive quarters. Exactly. So it, yeah, margin plays a big, big factor into um, EBITDA and, and, you know, really as a go forward perspective, when a buyer is looking at a company, um, they're making sure that the margin is sustainable and the sustainability isn't you know hockey stick growth where there's margin that just jumped up over the last several months or you know the last quarter of last year it's making sure it's it's stable right and that plays into sort of the multiple perspective of looking at buying a company so if the margins have been fairly consistent with you know consistent rises then that's fair but if it's something that's been you know margins have been fixated around let's say 20 25% and they jump up to 35% you know, just in the last quarter, then a buyer is going to look at that saying, is that sustainable? And then they usually take an average, you know, from an EBITDA perspective, which is also taking an average of the margin perspective too, to value the business based on kind of an overall holistic approach, as opposed to a very finite piece of time. All right, let's talk about this new interest that's come in, whether it's a, a family office, whether it's private equity. Uh, so I'm, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm coming from some family office and I say to you, Peter, 
we're thinking of getting into this supply chain. It sounds real interesting. We thought we might buy a brokerage company. What would you tell me or what would be kind of some of the first things you'd ask me? Yeah, the, the first thing to ask would really for somebody coming from outside the space is to, to dial down on what, A, what their interest is, and then from that to discern, you know, the area of logistics that they'd be really interested in, right? Because just like any space, there's always subsets in the logistics space. Is it, you know, is the family office or the potential buyer interested in heavy haul? Are they interested in general freight? Are they interested in reefer, specialized pharmaceuticals? So generally speaking, if somebody comes to us and they own a bunch of other investments, we like to find out what all their other investments are. So we could then give knowledgeable advice on potential cross synergies that they could be able to use together. So let's say that family office owns a pharmaceutical company. Um, and let's say that they, you know, their interest in buying a freight broker, our goal would be to say, great, well, maybe we look for, you know, a freight broker or 3PL that's focused or has some ability to focus on the pharmaceutical or medical supply space, because then they're able to cross synergize, you know, from a growth perspective and a cost perspective into their other portfolio companies. So it's really getting to know them as well as getting to know what their focus should be, right? So it's giving educated advice that they're able to benefit from, you know, kind of across all their portfolios. I see. So what are some of the interesting perspectives, though, that may, they may have brought that I won't say that you didn't know before, but are there things that they're more interested in than, let's say, another 3PL company might be interested in? Yeah, generally speaking, so a 3PL company looking at buying another 3PL or freight broker, uh, they have the infrastructure already in place in order to be able to purchase a company and absorb them from, you know, AR, AP, back office, tech technology space that they already have. But when you're a family office or a private equity company, generally speaking, they're looking for a platform investment. So they're looking for a company that's big enough and has the infrastructure already established that when they purchase it, they don't really need to fix things or add into it. They could purchase that that business and have it as a standalone function that could operate solely by themselves. And then as they're looking to grow that entity, they look for bolt-ons for adding smaller 3PLs or freight brokers onto it. So they're looking for really, you know, that platform investment. So from their first transportation logistics investment, that's what they're looking for. You, you, I was going to hold this question for later, but you just kind of touched on it. So we'll go right to it. As someone, something of an outsider, I've always been interested in the acquisition of 3PLs in the sense that 3PL is to be, to open up a 3PL company is not one that has huge barriers to entry. Uh, we know that about trucking in general. Uh, and, and the, the whole question of build versus buy has always sort of intrigued me. Why a 3PL that wants, that's looking at buying somebody else's company, why they don't just try to build it themselves? Because I'm not saying that there's no value in the acquisition, but the bar, again, the barriers to entry are not particularly high. It's not like saying, well, I, it's not like you mentioned a pharmaceutical company. Let's say, well, we, we don't have a good pharmaceutical product that deals with arthritis. So let's go buy this company because they've got a great arthritis product. Okay. You can get into a 3PL sector if you put your mind and money to it. Right. It's not necessarily easy, but it's possible. So where do you fall on kind of like the buy versus build? Why don't more of these companies just build it themselves instead of paying a premium for an existing? company. So two things with that. So the first thing is from a buy perspective, well, circling back, if you're a 3PL and you're deciding you're on the fence about either building or buying, you know, we have those conversations all the time. And the biggest thing to ask is 
Are you growing organically? If the answer is yes, then you could still continue to grow organically. Adding an acquisitional growth into it, you grow exponentially and in very short order. So that same time, effort, and risk to be able to going into a new space that you don't know is very similar to the cost of actually buying a 3P, another 3PL that's maybe focused in that space. And you could do it in half the time or a quarter of the time. So it's looking at more from a time perspective and the cost invested in order to get into that space. Yes, the barriers of entry might be lower than other areas, but it's still a barrier of entry that costs money and costs talent and effort to be able to get into it. So the acquisitional growth gets you there exponentially quicker. And it's a sure thing in the sense that you're able to purchase something that's already been in play for many years and has customer con- customer contracts or customer relationships that have already been built into it as opposed to you starting from scratch. So that's one of the major pieces there too in, in, in kind of the buy versus build strategy. But equally, any acquirer should always be trying to grow organically while looking at an acquisition strategy. You can't stop growing organically and just hope that you know everything's going to be great just through acquiring companies. You still have to be growing through organic growth as well at the same time. So those are, you know, it's we see that in the market all the time and people come to us kind of again on the fence, figuring out what's best. And yeah, that's that's the advice we give them too. And and something to note too in the current market, because of of capacity constraints, uh, human capital constraints, it's really hard to grow organically right now from an asset-based side or non-asset-based side. So a lot of companies that even we chatted with at the, the TIA, they can't grow organically because they don't have the people to be able to grow from an organic standpoint. So people are really looking at M&A versus acquisitions as a solution to that inability to grow organically just from the human capital perspective alone. Yes, that's because this is, I'm going to guess this has become a big factor, not just in uh, non-asset, uh, non-asset companies, but in asset heavy companies that you're, you're not just buying the business, you're buying the, the workers. I guess acquiring companies always say the same thing, but it really must uh, have a big role now. It, it does. It, it's, you know, there's, and this is something we talk too often because there's an impression that, you know, from, you know, the 1980s film Wall Street, where a big acquirer comes in, buys a company and starts firing people and kicking people out the door and, and saving costs by getting rid of people. It's the exact opposite. And it's been like that for many, many years now. And, and more so even now with human capital being an extreme premium and being a very tight market. So when anybody's looking at buying a business, they're buying it for the people. That's it. Whether it's it's the 3PL company where they have dispatchers, CSRs, anybody that's client-focused or related to that sales, they're buying it for the people. If they're buying an asset-based company, they're buying it for the drivers, right? The equipment, sure. But if you don't have people to drive the trucks or you don't have people to dispatch the loads, it doesn't exist. You need those people. So people are absolutely the most important thing in any acquisition, hands down. That's it. Okay, so we saw each other at the TIA meeting, but you also do asset-heavy companies. You do trucking companies themselves. Are you seeing any softening in valuations there as a result of the downturn in rates? I mean, the, the rate downturn is what, maybe six weeks old, eight weeks at most. So maybe it hasn't filtered yet through to the valuations of trucking companies. But I would imagine that is, it's got to happen. Yeah, it's it, it's something that we're, we're looking at right now. It's It, it hasn't really impacted the, the, the asset-based side. Uh, just because there's still capacity constraints from, you know, actual trucks and and you know the power units and trailers and there's a shortage in that and that hasn't 
spun through. And just because there's, you know, there's a lot of pieces at play and the assets themselves have a hold a ton of value. So from the actual asset base side, we haven't seen any decrease really. I think it's, it's again, been very steady. And despite these outside, you know, economic forces at play, it's been very consistent to where it was in, in Q4 of 2021. So we don't really see that playing a big part um, from, you know, a downturn in the market really until I don't know, late in 2022. And, you know, something to note too, I know we talk about the, you know, the, the volumes coming down and the rates coming down too. We really haven't seen, you know, the impact of the Shanghai shutdown going on in China and the impact of the supply chain from the manufacturing standpoint over in Asia right now, we might see that that downturn quickly stop its its downturn and move its way up because of outside factors like that too. And and those usually take about two to four weeks to realize. So we, you know, I wouldn't be hard pressed on thinking that, you know, the sky is falling just yet. I think we've got, uh, there's some other outside factors I think will level off that, uh, you know, that downturn if we have it. So how strong do you think the market will be, let's say a year from now? You feel fairly confident it's going to hold a lot of its valuation, both for three PLs and for trucking companies. Yeah, I think I think from you know, COVID fundamentally shifted, you know, the you know, the focus on the supply chain. I think in the past people looked at it as a tertiary or fifth or sixth item on on you know a million other items that they had uh, looking you know at. At, at multiple areas of, of their businesses. So right now it's, it's really at the top of everyone's discussion points. And I, I don't see that going away anytime soon. So if the interest is there, there's still going to be, you know, valuations may not be as high as what they are uh, currently or just in late 2021, but they're not going to dip to pre 2020, uh, 2020 numbers from uh, pre pandemic. So they're still going to be pretty high. They may not be as high as the current value, but we're talking about, five ten percent dip so when you're looking at from a multiple perspective instead of you know companies selling for seven times ebitda might be 6.75 or six and a half so the the decrease is going to be very slight so the peak is really kind of now and in end of 2021 and we'll probably continue into call it q3 2022 all right. Well, let, one last question. We talked here a lot about the demand side. We talked about private equity being interested in buying existing 3PLs looking to expand their footprint. What about the supply side? Are you seeing with these valuations, okay, maybe, maybe the, the valuations uh, are, are equal in terms of multiples, uh, but you're still dealing off a dollar base that's increasing because the size of every invoice is increasing. Uh, are you seeing companies saying, or company owners saying, okay, time for me to cash out? Are you, are you seeing a pretty good supply there? Yeah, the, 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 you know, it, there's a lot of factors in that too. So it's it's a it's a great time to sell. Uh, B, a lot of people jumped into this industry after the deregulation, so they're of the age in let's call it you know early 60s, mid 60s, the age of retirement, if you will. So there's there's actual you know demographic outside factors you know, happening at the same time, right? And, you know, on top of it, people have lived through this pandemic too. And, you know, it's a very trying time. So from a stress factor and a mental health perspective, a lot of these guys or, or women or men are have decided saying, look, I don't want to go through this again. You know, our business is really, you know, doing great right now. The valuations are at all time highs. I'm in my mid sixties and you know what, now's the time. So there's all those factors coming into play right now. So there's, you know, it's really driving, 
you know, a lot of owners to look at exiting or at least, you know, finding other alternatives. All right, Peter, we want to thank you today for joining us here on Drilling Deep. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, so our guest today has been Peter Stefanovich. He is the president of Left Lane Associates. They are, I guess we'll call you an advisory company or investment banker. How do you describe yourself? Yeah, we're Left Lane is an investment bank that's fo- that focuses on asset-based and non-asset-based uh, businesses in the transportation, ba- transportation supply chain space and, and warehousing as well in North America. That's the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. Well, thanks for that quick elevator speech. I appreciate it. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. I am your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.